Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us this week. And thank you if you've uh, left comments at an episode page at our website, thenexttrack.com. Or if you'd like to contact us directly, use the contact form at thenexttrack.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. This is episode number 107 of The Next Track. Your assignment this week, by the way, is to tell two friends how much you enjoy the podcast and to convince them to subscribe and how much it will enhance their quality of life. Okay? As you know, Doug, I'm working on a new podcast, and we won't talk about it here until it's available, and it might interest some of our listeners, it might not. And last week, you edited a demo of our first episode, or our episode zero, and you also wrote some theme music for it. Right. And that theme music was just running through my head for the entire day. It was one of the strongest earworms I've had in a long time. It wasn't anything sophisticated, but it just burrowed, it just burrowed into my amygdala and it just circled around my brain and I couldn't get it out. I had to play some really loud Grateful Dead to forget it. That's one way you can get rid of an earworm. Another recommendation is to chew some gum. Believe it or not, that's, that's a... I, I've that's never a, heard that before. That is a theoretical... Well, maybe it's not theoretical. I guess somebody's had results doing it. Earworm, I like the word, but it's originally from German. It's what's known as a calc. It's a uh, it's a direct translation of the German word, which is Orverm. Orverm. I love that word. It's like it sounds like Captain Nemo's other submarine, or uh, in Moby Dick, you know, the Pequod was in dry dock, so they decided to take the Orverm. Um, <laughs> it's a great word, and I think the word the 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 syllable Verm also has a tingly uh, sense for me because of the Yes song. Yes, um, that's right. There's a there's an instrumental that long instrumental that just kind of whines and. So verm has a has a really great sound to it. So I love calling it an orverm. There are other scientific descriptions of it. Uh, stuck song syndrome is is one. Involuntary musical imagery. That that to me is is an incredibly boring term. Well, they had they have to come up with something like that because there's actually a whole category of these uh, involuntary memories. That you can have now they're not only auditory but they can also be visual they can be uh texts and things like that now the funny thing about those things is though if you start seeing things that aren't there um they lock you away <laughs> but yet when you start hearing songs that you either like or don't like or, or have a fondness for or don't have a fondness for that seems to be mildly irritating but it's okay but mo a lot of people find earworms to be incredibly irritating i i don't mind them so much i'm always interested in why i have a particular earworm at any particular time but other than that i i really don't care about them well they would lock you away if if what was happening to you was somewhat exceptional if you were marginal if you were in a minority but according to the wikipedia page about the orverm 98 percent of individuals experience orverms so that means that we're all just normal it all just happens to us normally. The, the thing about earworms is sometimes I don't mind. It's like all of a sudden now you were talking about yes, and I've got that intro to yours is no disgrace running through my head, sort of as like a, a, a quiet voice while we're talking here. And I don't mind that. But if it's something like an ABBA song, then I, just, you know, kill me that, now. It's really. That's the funny thing is like you can't. Your brain decides somehow or another to, to make this music available to your conscious. And it can be a song you like, 
or a lot of people, and I think what happens is people remember more frequently the songs that they don't like, but I think they probably experience songs they like and don't like in equal volume. A theory is is that human beings are are, are built to remember musical things. I mean, music is used as a mnemonic. Well, think about the ABC song, how you learned your ABCs when you were a kid. Yep. Human beings have only been writing things down for a few thousand years, but we've been trying to remember things for a lot longer than that. So oftentimes, songs were used as mnemonics. So we might be programmed to remember sing-songy things exceptionally well, even though we don't really use that facility so much now that we have writing and, and recordings and things like that. Well, that's a good point. I think Socrates or Aristotle or whatever complained about writing that would, it would keep people from remembering things. But what's interesting about these oral traditions where they would pass text down orally is that they have a high level of repetition. We don't know how they were read. Were they simply declaimed in a Shakespearean manner? Were they sung? That's it. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the... the you know, the fact that they could be poetry, which a lot of stuff was, I mean, because it's easy to remember that da, 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 which is a rhythm, which is a song. So, you know, I can definitely see the facility being being created o- over time for just a, a appreciating and remembering that mnemonic rhythm, whether it has a melody or not is different. I guess it wouldn't, I guess it would have a melody, right? I mean, even the way you said the words. Well, whenever we speak, at least in English, we our voices have have melodies and and if you were to plot the notes that i've just said there you'd see a little curve on a musical staff and you'd be able to put the 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 durations of the notes and the rests and and all of that and they do have melodies uh, interestingly there are some languages that don't have melodies french is very monotonous they don't have word stress for the most part so you don't get the same type of melody chinese has a great deal of melody because just in Mandarin Chinese, there are four different tones. There's a, a flat tone, a rising tone, a falling rising tone, and and I, I can't remember what the fourth one was. I studied some Chinese about 30 years ago. So Chinese is a melodic language, but the melody isn't up to the speaker. The melody depends on the words. I had a friend uh, in college who was South Vietnamese, and when she would get on the phone to talk to her family, it sounded like she was singing. And it used to be delightful to hear her speak that, her language. This wonderful sing-songy um, speaking, and it was just absolutely wonderful. I know what you mean about French is very dry, very flat. That's because they don't have word stress. And, and it's the word stress that often it creates the melody for us. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a really interesting little video that was shot right nearby here at the Royal Shakespeare Company two years ago. They were celebrating the 400th birthday of Shakespeare or the 400th anniversary of his death, something like that. They were a year apart. And this young actor who played in Hamlet in 2016, Papa Esidu, came on and he started doing the to be or not to be. And then someone runs on, I think it was Tim Minchin. He says, wait, 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 you don't do it like that. It's to be or not to be. And then they go through with these six other actors, Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, Benedict Cumberbatch, and one special guest at the end who, who really makes it kind of funny. But what's interesting is the way that they were actually doing something that theater directors probably do when they're working on lines. They think, where do we want to stress this? What's the strong, is it the to be or not to be, or is it the to be or not to be? And that makes a big difference in English, which is not the case in other languages. We used to try to think up sentences where if you change the emphasis of each word, 
you would get separate, subtle meanings from the sentence. For instance, I have a dog. I have a dog. I have a dog. I have a dog. Now, this, of course, shows the fact that coincidentally, we have both studied linguistics in our lifetime. So we are aware of this. You've worked in radio where this sort of thing is something you think about. When you listen to Doug's introduction to this podcast, uh, you'll hear that you call this singing, that type of voice, when you, yeah. hi, this is the Next Track Podcast. Join us for a wonderful 30 minutes of music, linguistics, and more. And and it, it is melodic. I can tell that you've listened to the introduction recently, because that's <laughs> yes. exactly what I say. Yes. No, but it's the same <laughs> when you do ads on this podcast or others. Ads tend to sing more than other things. So you're very aware of this mm. in radio. It's funny, though. I don't remember, but I don't have earworms of famous speeches. Or uh, or people talking necessarily. It's usually it's I guess almost always a piece of music, a song. Yes, but not the lyrics, right? It's it's the melody. It's not the lyrics. It's the hook. Uh, it's the hook. It's the. In fact, you know that's why they call them hooks because songwriters <laughs> definitely take advantage of this facility that we have and they create these hooks that you remember. That's why they're called hooks. Um, a good pop song has to have a hook. People used to call us on the radio station with earworms and say, would you please play this song so I don't have to hear it in my head anymore? <laughs> you know, maybe that will get rid of it. Um, why does your subconscious bring these things forward and make you listen to them? And, and one theory goes along the lines of your brain doesn't know what it means. And so it's it's essentially saying, hey, conscious brain, can you make heads or tails of this? And so what happens is it, and it can't resolve this 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 understanding of what it is, and so it keeps playing it over and over again, and you become annoyed by it. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. It's almost like you know when you wake up in the middle of the night in the middle of a dream, your brain is processing all of this stuff that happened, and you walk into this processing going on, and you're watching this processing going on, and you don't know what it means, and you can't make heads or tails of it because your subconscious is the one that's that's trying to make heads or tails of it. It's, it's supposed to do that, but none of this stuff is supposed to come forward. But when it does, it's bewildering and annoying. One of the weird earworms that I get every once in a while is the very beginning of Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. You know, the bit you have two beats and you get the slide whistle going, woo! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that, that first measure with the slide whistle, it just goes around in circles sometimes. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> By the way, 77 years old. The day before we're recording this, Bob Dylan just turned 77, and he's still doing arena shows. He's been selling out in Australia recently. So thanks, Bob, for creating. Dylan, Dylan has a lot of earworms for me, actually. I think there really are two categories of earworms. There's the ones you don't like, and there's the ones that you are very, very familiar with. If I were to just stop and think for a moment, there. Came into my head the first notes of Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick. If I just sort of think music, something really familiar comes into my mind. If I were to think Grateful Dead, it's like China Cat Sunflower. It's like the first thing I think of. So these are songs I'm really familiar with, and they just pop in if I let them. One of the things I find most annoying is I will hear a snippet of a guitar solo or any other instrumental solo, and I cannot place where it comes from. And this little lick will be playing over and over and over again. And then I have to force myself to try to really bring it forward so I can 
piece together maybe the memory of the rest of the solo. I go around the house. Hey, honey, how, what do you, does this sound familiar? That's that's the most annoying. Yeah. If, if you know what the song is, it's one thing. But the, the problem with that kind of earworm is you have to keep hearing it until you figure out what it is. Right. Yes. Now, I generally find that when I do figure out what it is, then it goes away. Right. So it's it's like your theory earlier that the brain is trying to figure something out to resolve something. Maybe it needs to file this riff away someplace, but it has to know whether, you know, what letter it goes under or something like that. Yeah, right, exactly, where the where the file cabinets are. One other thing, and, and nothing to do with music, but every time I hear the word earworm, I can't not think of that episode of The Twilight Zone called The Caterpillar. Do you remember that? There's this guy who's an explorer, and he gets this ear wig, which is a little insect that goes into his ear, and it has to eat its way through its his brain to get out the other side, right? I mean, okay, stretching truth a little bit. But the real kicker is at the end, they find out that not only did it go through his brain, but it was a female and it laid eggs. Oh, that's a good one. That's always good. That is that is one of it's the end of the second season of Night Gallery. It's one of the creepiest episodes I have ever seen. I mean, there's a lot of Rod Serling creepy stuff, but that really takes the cake. That was hard. I was, what, 13 years old when that was on, and I saw that. Yeah, that was you, just... Im impressionable. You were very impressionable. Yes, really. Thing. Totally unrelated to earworms is another interesting word that sometimes applies to music. It's the mondegreen. Mondegreens are misheard lyrics. Misheard lyrics, yes. The origin of the term is interesting. I'm sure it existed before this, Someone named Sylvia Wright wrote an article in Harper's Magazine in 1954 talking about how she had misheard a line of a 17th century poem called The Bonnie Earl of Moray. The poem, she thought, was Ye Highlands and Ye Lowlands. I wish I could do the Scottish accent. Ye Highlands and Ye Lowlands, oh, where ha ye been? They have slain the Earl of Moray and Lady Mondegreen. Well, the actual line was and laid him on the green they had they had slain the earl of moray and laid him on the green and she said the point about what i shall hereafter call mondegreen since no one has thought up a word for them is that they are better than the original <laughs> i don't know about that well they're um, sometimes more amusing than the original the classic one that i think most people know is the from the Jimi hendrix song purple haze where he takes a break and says excuse me while i kiss the sky which is heard as, excuse me, while I kiss this guy, this guy. I never heard it that way. Well, me neither. And But I've actually met people who think that's the lyric. When I first found out that that's how people heard it, I began to wonder, how did you hear it that way? Because if he's, is he talking about kissing a guy himself? Or is he saying, this is what a girl said to me. And she said to me, excuse me while I kiss this guy, meaning he was going to receive the kiss. And right. then I'm thinking, but that doesn't even make sense with the rest of the words. He's not talking about, he's talking about some kind of psychedelic experience, purple haze all in my brain. And then I remembered that, you're going to think I'm crazy for thinking like this, the term the sky in pop music at the time was fairly popular. I, I immediately think of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, the Joni Mitchell song um, about Woodstock, where she sings about, I saw the bomber death planes riding shotgun in the sky. Um, sky Pilot by The Animals, uh, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. So the sky was a fairly, um, you know, well-used metaphor uh, for, you know, cosmic experiences. And so I never heard it as this guy, and I still don't understand why people heard it that way, and I found it very hard to reconcile. 
Um, but that is the classic. Another classic that we used to hear all the time is There's a Bathroom on the Right, which is a misheard lyric from Creedence Clearwater Revival's Bad Moon Rising. There's a Bad Moon on the Rise is heard as There's a Bathroom on the Right. You have another Creedence Mondegreen. Yeah, and, and I wonder if Creedence Clearwater Revival isn't very prone to Mondegreens because of the way John Fogarty sang. Exactly. The one that I had a few months ago, and, and we've actually talked about doing this episode a couple months ago, because I'd been listening to Creedence Clearwater Revival, and looking out my back door, there's a line that I'd always heard as, Memory's an elephant I'm playing in the band. Memory apostrophe S, an elephant. The actual line is, Tambourines and elephants are playing in the band. Now, the combination of memory... By the way, that song is also of the Purple Haze persuasion, if you know what I mean. Yes, it is, but it's also a very potent earworm. The interesting thing about trying to decipher the lyrics is that I think your brain is takes a sample of what the singer says at the beginning. And you say, okay, this is the template for how this singer sings. And then you attempt to apply that template to later lyrics, and your brain gets confused. I, can I tell the Clud story? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, Kirk and I were talking to a French engineer. Ah, yes. Okay. And we were talking about server storage. And this gentleman spoke English very well, but he had a very thick French accent. And it was difficult for me to actually lock on to that accent. And we were talking about server storage. And he kept using this word. He kept saying, our customers know the Clud is going to benefit them. We use the CLUD very frequently. And I'm thinking, what is the CLUD? What is he talking about? Is it an acronym for something that I'm not... Maybe I don't know enough about server storage and the CLUD is something. He was saying the cloud, but I didn't hear it that way. Now, even though I understood virtually 90% of the things that he was saying, and it took a second sometimes because he did have this thick accent, I could not find the right context. I couldn't match up what he was talking about and... It was so obviously the cloud, but it took like six or seven times for me to hear it, to realize it. And that just, it's its like in the, in the Jimi Hendrix song, you hear the first purple haze all in my brain. Okay, I understand that part. And it's funny, doesn't Jimi Hendrix kind of have a Bob Dylan thing going there? Purple haze all in my brain. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix, very inspired by Bob Dylan. Yeah. But anyway, so you get to this point where he stops and sings and your brain does not hear so your brain doesn't process it the right way, and you continue to hear it that way as often as you hear the song. I have another example. Elvis Presley's All Shook Up. The second line is something like, my friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I always heard it as wad as a bud. Because the, the word wild as a bug... What does that mean? That's not an expression where I'm from. No one says, hey, he's acting wild as a bug. It's like, <laughs> what? And so, I mean, he's from the South, so maybe bugs jump. Maybe there's more grasshoppers or something. Maybe that's an expression or something. And there are actually several words in that song that I didn't understand until I actually saw them. The thing is, up until about the 40s or the 50s, singers sang very precisely. Pop songs, you could understand the words. Think Frank Sinatra. Right. Frank Sinatra is a perfect example of, boy, you can understand every single word. And it's important because the words, the lyrics are important. But Elvis Presley comes along and others of his ilk, borrowing the way African-Americans sang, borrowing the way Southerners sang, singing with a drawl. And suddenly you can't understand what they're singing. And 
as pop music evolves from the you know in the 50s and the 60s you get more of that you get more of a, a, a you know of regional accents and the precision of the lyrics isn't that important mick jagger take note Exile on Main Street, I can I probably know about 50% of the lyrics because I cannot understand a word that Mick Jagger is saying. And, of course, Mick Jagger is famous for, for making a mess and a muddle of, of lyrics. So I think it's interesting. It's about how you process it. Well, here's another good example from All Shook Up that I found on the Internet. A midget like a man on a fuzzy tree. Yeah, a fuzzy tree. I never understood that line either. That's another one. I said, is he saying a funny tree or what? what's a fuzzy tree? Well, he's saying fuzzy, but he's saying I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. If you look at it, so here's, again, in, into linguistics, our brain, when we don't quite understand what a word is, it tries to figure it out by the context. And the the thing about the fuzzy tree means you have no idea what a fuzzy tree is, so you can't figure out the rest of it. And even in the, the, the example you mentioned about the clude, they, they actually say le clude, right. le clude, you have to have that ooh in it. Je ne parle pas français. You, you have the context of what we're talking about. But that word is so foreign because even though it's just an English word pronounced incorrectly or differently. at the time, the context for you is missing. What's interesting is I speak fluent French. I lived in the country nearly 30 years. And in computers in French, they are constantly using English words when they talk about computing, web design, things like that. So when you're listening to someone, for the same client, I've done a number of transcriptions of video presentations. Someone does a video for 20 minutes and they want this transcribed and translated into English to put subtitles on YouTube videos. The first time I go through, there are all these question marks where I can't figure it out. And then the second time, I have to slow it down. I use an app called Coda, which is made for playing music like at half speed, and I have to slow it down to listen to it. And and then all of a sudden you get that click when it makes sense. Oh, yes, le cloud, cloud. It's all about the context of the way we hear things and the way we relate them to in order to interpret something, we can't interpret anything on its own. Tambourines and elephants, just on its own with no context, doesn't mean anything. And and in my case, what's interesting is that since I didn't hear the word tambourine correctly, and John Fogarty, not great mix of that particular recording, I got the elephant and my brain said, well, here is a three-syllable word with the same stress, tambourine, memory, Elephant is sometimes associated with memory. It's got the same stress signature, so let's just assume it's that. Back in the day when I was, I used to teach English as a foreign language, and I remember a book and a seminar at the British Council in Paris where someone was talking about that, about how we understand words, how we decode words, how we organize words in our brain. I'll try and find, the book was called, I think it was called Words in the Mind by Gene Acheson. And the author was talking about the fact that we have a sort of, we have a a standard concept of what a chair is, right? But a chair can be the office chair that you and I are sitting in. It can be a wing chair. It can be my comfy chair behind me that leans back. It can be one of those Amish chairs, right? Which is just, you know, thin poles of wood. It could have three legs or four. So we have this sort of hierarchy of words going from the prototypical down to the, the more specific. My father used to say, how do we know a dog is a dog? Like, when you see a dog, you know it's a dog, but yet dogs can look very different. <laughs> but yet, how do we know it's a dog? What, what, you know, so they all have some kind of common paradigm that dogs are supposed to look like. Yeah, there, there's, there's a default dogness, right. but then there's all these variations that get further and further away. And, and 
does a dachshund really look like a dog? Right, exactly. Does a pug look like a dog? Right. A pug looks more like, I don't know, some sort of creature out of a, a Disney film or something. Right. Uh, we, we have two dogs. We have a, a, an American Pit Bull Terrier and we have a Pomeranian. They don't look alike at all. But anyway, we're straying from our linguistic. Well, thing. but it's still linguistics. It's, it's still the idea that when we're interpreting words, we're using the context. And if we're not sure, the brain just fills in something to make sure that we can hear something. Especially when it's a song, because you want to know what the song is about. You want to, you either want to sing it yourself or sing it along with yourself or, you know, for whatever reasons, but you, your brain yearns to understand it. Here's another one that's, that's somewhat interesting. Manfred Mann's Earth Band did a cover of Bruce Springsteen's Blinded by the Light. Great song on Greetings from Asbury Park, which is really my favorite Springsteen album. And it was a huge hit for Manfred Mann's Earth Band. And he sang a line that we've all heard revved up like a deuce, right? And so there's a verse that starts out the song and is repeated a couple of times, of course. Blinded by the light, revved up like a deuce, another runner in the night. Except that's not what Springsteen wrote. Springsteen wrote cut loose like a deuce. Now, it was a combination of being misheard, and maybe Manfred Mann wanted to just change the idea of it. He didn't like the term, but it's kind of strange that, that this seems to be on the borderline of a, a true Mondegreen and someone taking liberties. That's the sort of thing that we would get phone calls at the radio station for. You know, please settle a bet. <laughs> what, is, what are they actually saying there? And because some people would know the Springsteen song and they would hear the, the Manfred Mann song and they would, you know, there would be arguments about it. But that was a typical sort of classical, please settle a bet. I'll call the radio station. They'll know. And we don't know. We don't know. It's not like we have books of lyrics. Well, I used to think that it was wrapped up like a deuce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in the Manfred Mann version. Yeah, I used to spend, I, I, I did spend an inordinate amount of time trying to listen to the Manfred Mann version and figure out what the heck is he trying to say there? Because it didn't correspond well if you look at some of the other lyrics madman drummers bummers indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat these are just random words that are picked <laughs> up to rhyme and to have a stress pattern to fit with the music but that makes it even harder to understand what's going on sneezing and wheezing the calliope crashed to the ground i guess this goes back to the purple haze type of concept though doesn't it david bowie would write songs by well actually a lot of recording artists would write songs this way they just sing nonsense words, and sometimes the nonsense words actually make it into the song. Like, for instance, Susudio by Phil Collins. That's the, 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 the placeholder he was using, and he decided to keep it because he couldn't think of anything any better. But that's the sound that he made while he was kind of figuring out lyrics for the song. Uh, uh, John Lennon would write that way. He was into nonsense verse anyway, but he sort of used this stream of consciousness, whatever comes to mind, write it down, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it later. And uh, I'm, I'm sure a song like I Am the Walrus is uh, representative of that sort of lyric writing. I, I always thought that I Am the Walrus wasn't, was already a Mondegreen, that it wasn't about a walrus. The first times I heard it, before I owned the record, because that is a record that I owned back in the day, I always found that whole, you know, if you think of the lyrics, they are written to be a Mondegreen. Not the first part, I am he as you are he as you are me and we are all together. That's... That's that's poetry. That's that's declamatory poetry. But the next part, sitting on a cornflake waiting for the van to come, Corporation T-shirt, Stupid Bloody Tuesday. Man, you've been a naughty boy. You let your face grow long. What does that mean, really? Lennon actually wrote two books of nonsense verse. Uh, the first one was called In His Own Right, and that's right, W-R-I-T-E, In His Own Right, which was a bunch of nonsense. And... 
the next one, the one we had growing up was a Spaniard in the works, which is a play on the phrase, a spanner in the works. And that one was uh, cartoon drawings with, with nonsense verse to it. For instance, our favorite was Jeffrey the Budgie, because that was my brother's name, Jeffrey. But yeah, there's, that's an example of him using, using spa- placeholders and then just eventually just keeping them in the song because it fit the nonsense aspect it, of it. It fits, it fits the, the stress pattern. It fits, potentially rhymes with something else. And, you know, if you think about some of Dylan's songs, sometimes he throws in a word which is clearly there to rhyme and nothing else. The, the one that always, it kind of grates every time I hear it because Visions of Johanna is such a beautiful song, both musically and lyrically. And then there's this line that goes, hear the one with the mustache say, geez, I can't find my knees. And he's rhyming this with sneeze and freeze. And it's like, can't find my knees. This is just a cheap rhyme, Bob. You just... <laughs> You, you you went to sleep too early that night or you stayed up too late. It I just, I never really appreciated that one. Well, you know, rhythm and rhyme is really important in rap music. And so I know what rappers will do is they'll, they'll find a list of rhymes they want to use and then backfill from there, you know, and that's why you get some unusual constructions in rap lyrics. Uh, so that sounds like, oh, I'm going to rhyme. I need to rhyme freeze and breeze and knees and sneeze and whatever else it was. And so he might have just done it that way. That's a, that's a, that's a lazy man's way of writing a song lyric, I guess. It, it is. And, and this, is a, this is a very long song, too. So he had plenty of lyrics, and he probably cut half of the lyrics out of the original version of it. You know, it's an eight-minute song, I think. Well, fortunately now, we're able to look up lyrics when we listen to music. You can either Google them. Or, like, if you're using Apple Music, you can see the lyrics in in your iPhone or in iTunes, or there's always a way to find lyrics. It's not like back in the day when you'd have to call a radio station to find out what the lyrics were. In some ways, there's something charming about not knowing if the lyrics are right and having something weird in your head, but it, it kind of detracts from the music. So, Google it next time. And Kirk, have a good Memories and Elephant. We call this segment of the next track, Our Next Track Picks. It's a no-brainer. Kirk, what are you listening to this week? I bought some CDs recently. I don't buy a lot of CDs these days, as we've discussed many times, but there is a new box set by Brian Eno, which is called Music for Installations. And how does one turn down buying something like that? As we know, Eno is the father of ambient music. And in addition to his ambient compositions, the earliest ones are discrete music and music for airports, he created a number of compositions for installations, art installations, and they would accompany his artwork or artwork by other people. Most of this music was previously released, but not all of it. Um, some of it was released in different ways. In other words, this is a six-disc set. The second disc is 77 Million Paintings, which is the name of a, I guess you would call it an app these days. It was on a CD-ROM, and you would turn on your screen, and you would have this generative visual effect where the the screen would alter. I'll put a link in the show notes to the episode about Reflection, a work that he did last year, which was released as an app as well as a CD. 77 Million Paintings had a similar sort of way of displaying images on the screen while you were listening to it. And at the same time, the music was generative. There was actually a program that was creating the music behind it. So there's a 44-minute version of 77 Million Paintings. I think my favorite work on this is, curiously, the longest one is called E Dormiente, just under 40 minutes. And it's got a sort of a jaunty, lilting bass track to it. 
yet it's ambient. It's not the kind of, it's not drone ambient, but it's got a rhythm that a lot of the other pieces don't have. Some of the work will sound familiar. 77 Million Paintings has some, I guess, loops in the background that are similar to a track on the Shutov assembly. There are a few works that get a little bit later uh, on the fifties. Kazakhstan, I think, has some familiar riffs as well. This is music that he composed between 1985 and 2018. The ones that are 2018 are on a disc that's called Music for Future Installations. So I think these are compositions that haven't been used as installations yet. Some of this was previously available as extremely rare CDs that were only sold at the installations in a couple hundred copies. So it's great to have you know, five and a half hours of this really interesting ambient music and, and that, that covers a wide range of Eno's types of music. You can stream it, but I bought the box set of the CDs because there's a 64-page booklet talking about the process, talking about the installations, and for that alone, it's worth having. Doug, what about you? I mentioned during the show that I occasionally get these earworms that are just snippets of guitar solos that I'm familiar with, but I just can't, I just can't put my finger on the exact recording that they're from. One of those that I often get is by T-Bone Walker, and it's just an opening guitar lick on a song called G-Baby Ain't I Good To You from an album that is actually um, pretty important in my life. I think it's the first serious blues album I ever listened to. Uh, it's an album by T-Bone Walker called I Want A Little Girl, which I think is the original version is out of print now. They've reissued it. Uh, but it's been very difficult for me to lay my hands on it. But anyway, my father brought this record home, and it has this guy, T-Bone Walker, playing an electric guitar, but it wasn't rock, and it was it was sort of jazzy. I kind of knew what jazz was, and I was just surprised um, that it this guy playing an electric guitar wasn't playing like Jimi Hendrix. Well, it actually turns out that Jimi Hendrix plays more like T-Bone Walker than the other way around. In fact, Jimi Hendrix got the idea to play guitar with his teeth from T-Bone Walker. T-Bone Walker is more famous than that, though. He uh, He's probably best known for writing the song Stormy Monday. But anyway, I mean, he's T-Bone Walker. He's, he's one of the inventors of electric blues, for crying out loud. Um, and he recorded a lot of sides, as they used to say. Um, usually with uh, bass drums and sax or bass drum sax and piano. He does the vocals and the guitar playing, of course. As I said, I think this was the first blues album, or at least the first album I recognized as as real blues. And it was one of my father's favorites, too. So I heard it a lot as a little kid. It came out in 1968, so I guess we heard it new. But anyway, it really got me started on listening to blues music. Now... The other problem I'm having is I can't lay my hands on this. Amazon has the physical CD available, but it is not available for streaming, which is really unfortunate. And so it's one of those situations where I really want to hear this recording, but it's not available for streaming, and I have to buy the physical media. So that's what I did. I paid $7, and I'm getting a, a, a CD version from Amazon, and I haven't listened to it yet. I haven't heard it in probably 30 years, but I really can't wait. Uh, I've listened to a lot of other T-Bone Walker, but not this one. It is T-Bone Walker, I Want a Little Girl, and that's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.